7 o'clock on a Tuesday, 39 degrees right now. We've dropped a degree from the last hour, but that happens right around 7, 8 o'clock every morning. Then the temperature at that point will start to rebound. Rain today, rain tomorrow, rain Thursday, and then it's going to be a little bit dry on Friday, and then rain's coming back on Saturday. Oh, really? I'm just letting you know, a lot of rain. Next week, it's like rain every day. Oof. It is winter time in Arkansas. Mm. If it's not raining, it looks like it's going to be raining. <laughs> just let you know. People get, you know, they get Washington depression here. Now Washington, D.C., Washington State. Mm. Yeah. You want depression? Go to Seattle where it rains like almost every day. Mm. Uh, I hated that place. <laughs> All right, so the Bible guys are here. This is a special hour we do every week. It's one of the hours that is loved by the listeners. If you have a question about the Bible, about religion, uh, about anything dealing with faith matters, it's 823-0965, 823-0965. That's the number to call. Or you can uh, email us at bibleguys at salem, S-A-L-E-M-L-R dot com. And I've got several questions for you guys today. Cool. So Billy's here, Scott's here, Steve's here. Steve is back from his deathbed. Yeah. <laughs> he got he got the flu last week and found out when the flu flies in, you lie down. Yeah. And uh, that's what happened for him. All right, so dear Bible guys, can anyone explain to me why I need to be in a small group? I hear this small group idea being pushed all the time now. Isn't just going to a church service enough? I hear pastors selling, sell, saying that you need this, but I don't feel that need it at all. I'm happy just going to the main service. Am I wrong? Thanks. Mm, pastor? <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. Well, I would be one of those people who would be saying you need this. Yeah. Uh, and um, the reason you need that is because um, biblically we see that's the way that they did life. And... Um, uh, as a matter of fact, if I just kind of uh, uh, break this down kind of a little bit historically and also biblically, uh, the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse number 20, which kind of works well, this is the year 2020, secular year anyway, so Acts twenty twenty. it actually says the Apostle Paul declared, he said, I have kept nothing back that was profitable unto you, declaring the gospel to you publicly and house to house. So we can see there that Paul said, I didn't keep anything back that was profitable to you, and that profitability came in two directions, publicly, which we would see as a large gathering, and then house to house. Uh, it wasn't that they didn't have the ability to meet in a large place, uh, in a, you know, some type of theater out in a field or whatever, but uh, they saw that the house to house was an important element of that. As a matter of fact, within Judaism, um, they believed, well, mo- how should I say it? Discipleship was a huge part of the uh, of the life, and discipleship only happens in small groups. Right. Uh, Jesus, we know he ministered to the multitude, but he had a discipleship core of only twelve people. So he had a public ministry, 
That was out in the fields and the highways and byways. But he also had his small group, which was, of course, his disciple, his inner circle of 12 men. So Jesus becomes our example. The apostles carry that on. But it's not unique just to the New Testament, the Old Testament as well. Moses had a massive group of people that followed him and he taught. But he also had uh, he had Joshua, he had Aaron, he had Hur, he had a small group that was around him that he trained and put into you know, Elijah, Elijah went out and ministered to a lot of people, but he also had a small group that being his disciple, Elisha. So it's, it's a biblical principle. You actually need both of these things. Right. And if we look, um, one last thing, if we look at just historically, uh, when they began to excavate uh, the city of Jerusalem, they found that in the first century, Jerusalem was a city maybe of about, you guys might want to correct me here, I think it was about 80,000 people uh, at the end of the first century. But they have, we have found that was a lot of people. That by was the a way. lot of people. Yeah. They have found four hundred and eighty synagogues in Jerusalem. So and, you, and they thought that in Cabot we had a lot of churches. <laughs> Billy. I'm just saying. Well, I mean, if you think about it, if, if would you know if you if you had a, a, a city of eighty thousand eighty thousand people, a denomination would not consider putting four hundred eighty churches there. Right. But the reason why they did that. Uh, is because you could take 80,000 people and break them down to small group settings. Correct. I think, I think didn't they limit the size of synagogues to like 120 people? Yeah, it was, um, I don't know if it was the limit, but that was um, the average because of the whole minion thing. Yeah. And, and they, most of the discipleship didn't go outside of that, that number 12 that we're all used to. Um, most of them stayed within that small group. You didn't disciple 50, 60, 70 people because no. it's no. just not possible. I think when I was looking up um, the, about the early um, schools, and I don't remember which school it was, um, the largest one that they had at that time only had about 80 students. Yeah. And we look at 80 students and go, wow, um, that's, that's, you know, if you look at a university today, you're like, that's not very many people. Yeah. But when you got one guy who's the primary teacher, the primary rabbi, that's a very large school. But most of them stayed how Yeshua set up his and just had a small group of 12. And the synagogues were set up that way because they had... Um, they had about 10 different leaders inside of a synagogue. So they all took care of a very small group of people because you need that accountability and that fellowship and you need a confidant when you need to talk about things. So staying in those small groups is very, very important. Not just hearing the preacher teach a message, but someone that you can talk to about. And that, and that's important because it wasn't just giving information. It was someone watching to see that you took that information right. and did something with it. Yeah. I think actually it was required for every synagogue of 120, you had to have at least 10 teachers. That's it. And, and that was so that you could take 10 teachers. I mean, think about today. You have a church of, I mean, people, most churches don't have 10 pastors on staff. But no. for 120 people, they had 10 teachers so that it could be broken down into groups of 10-ish and then see that what was being taught was actually being practically walked out, which is the essence of Jewish thinking. Yeah. And the point that you just made was the one I was um, one I was going to jump onto there. Uh, and understand that I spent uh, about 15 years of my life or so helping churches establish small group ministry. So it's something I'm intimately familiar with. Here's the problem, particularly in a large church that does not have small groups. And that is that people become very um, thought centric about Christ. It becomes head knowledge uh, and can have a hard time penetrating uh, into the rest of our lives. We, we know a lot about Christ rather than knowing Christ. And it's in that small group setting where um, you know, someone can tell you your stuff stinks if your stuff stinks. Uh, that's part of the accountability that exists in a small group. When I know someone, um, because I've spent perhaps years in a small group with them, um, well, typically that stuff gets rotated around some. But having people that I can be accountable to, have people that uh, are accountable to me, uh, knowing 
what their life looks like, um, them knowing what my life looks like, it, that also helps uh, curb sin. Because I, you know, if I see your behavior changing, a, a pastor of a of a thousand member church probably isn't going to see one individual's behavior changing. But me in a small group with six or seven other folks, your behavior starts changing. I'm going to notice that long before somebody who doesn't know you very well or sitting just sitting in the sanctuary with you, mm-hmm. um, it helps to drive our walk with Christ. It helps to keep us. Uh, to be frank about it, it helps to keep us honest about what we're doing yep. uh, and provide that accountability. And Christ was all about accountability. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we talk about the 12, but in reality, by and large, Christ mentored three, Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John, over, 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 over. Um, so we need that We need that fellowship to begin with, um, and we need that ability to, to see life lived out through uh, our elders as well. If you don't have some old folks in your group, you should be looking for some old folks in your group who've lived with Christ for a long time. So, yeah. All right. We come back. Here's the question you all will be uh, wrestling with. I've been reading that Jesus gave authority to his followers over all the work of the enemy. Can the Bible guys give me their thoughts on what that actually means to them? Is there a limit to the way we can use this authority, and how do you use it in a practical way? That's the question that we'll uh, take on when we come back with our three pastors here on the Dave Ellswick Show. It's the Bible Guys. Remember, Guys at SalemLR.com, or you can call in while you're listening to the show today, 823-0965. Traffic, weather, all that coming up right now here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, you just joined us. Bible Guys are here on the Dave Ellswick Show. They're here once a week on Tuesdays at 7 a.m. It's the most listened to hour on the radio, so that tells you how important I think they are. Scott's here, Steve's here, Billy's here. Uh, they are all uh, pastors, and they're all ready to help you out. Got a question? Eight two three zero nine six five, or if you want, would rather uh, email me. Uh, it's Bible Guys at Salem S A L E M L R dot com. All right, so let me reread this to you guys. I've been reading that Jesus gave authority to his followers over all the work of the enemy. Can the Bible guys give me their thoughts on what that actually means to them? Is there a limit to the way we can use this authority, and how do you use it in a practical way? Okay. Um, good question, yeah, by good, way. It is a good question. Um, well, whenever the Bible tells us something, the, the default setting is to believe it to be true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if Jesus says, behold, I've given you authority, authority over all the work of, of the enemy to tread upon, and then it gives us this, this long list of things that we have authority over. So if the word says it's, then, uh, then we believe it to be true. Uh, you know, do we understand it all the way? Maybe that's a question that's, that's that's sitting out there. But we believe it to be true, whether or not we fully understand all its implications. So, um, I believe then because the that Jesus came and the Bible actually says that he came to that he might destroy the works of of the devil, that he might may make a display of him openly, that he might. Uh, uh, you know, bring to to nothing his influence. I do believe that we have then the authority and the ability as believers to walk independent of that uh, influence as long as we continue to live and reside in Christ. So um, the manifestation of that authority uh, really is dependent upon our walking in um, in the Lord. 
And then as far as we, how we use that authority, was that one of the parts of the question, how we use it? Mm-hmm. Um, we use it uh, just like Jesus used it, number one, whenever the devil, you remember when the devil attempted him in the wilderness, what he did to fend off the devil was he quoted the word. Um, the Bible tells us that the word of God is the sword of the spirit. So if you look at it at that way, whenever the devil came to him and said, if you're the son of God, do this, this, and this. And if you be the son of God, then cast yourself down. If you be the son of God, turn these stones to bread. And every time the devil tempted Jesus, his response was, it is written, it is written, it is written. And he quoted the scripture at the accusation. So a part of our authority resides in the use of the word of God as the sword of the spirit. If the enemy comes to you and says, starts telling you how you know, you're know you depressed, you, you have no hope, uh, then our response would be to say, um, yeah, I, re- I rebuke you, devil, because the joy of the Lord is my strength. Mm-hmm. Or you would quote the verse. You'd quote a verse of scripture opposite of what the enemy's bringing towards you, and they'd always use and pray it in the name of Jesus, which is the authority mechanism that we that we okay, have. Okay, when it said authority, it says, "Is there a limit to the way we can use this authority?" Uh, when it comes to the devil, I don't uh, know. I mean, it uh, just that's that's the way the question is written. I don't. It depends on what they're trying to do and what they mean by that, because you can. There's a lot of people that talk about taking authority over all these different things, yeah. um, and they're misapplying some of that. Um, <clears throat> I don't. I'm not sure that that aspect of things when people are taking authority over regions, over nations. Over, I, I just don't know that they have that kind of power. Right. Um, that by just their simple confession or claiming to take authority over the state of Arkansas, America, or whatever, because I think that thing requires a much greater, deeper intercession and prayer and probably uh, a unification within the body, to, if you will, to strengthen your power, to cross the streams, if you will, uh, because just by simply confessing those things um, uh, at that level, we're talking about a personal level because of that has been, that power and that authority has been given, is given to us. That's something different. So it depends on what they mean. There's also another aspect of this that is meant in authority that most people don't know about. And this is talking about teaching authority as well. Right. Um, so if you remember, there were several times that they, they came to Yeshua and said, um, by what authority do you teach? And, the, and in another place it says he taught as one with authority. Well, that meant there was this authority that was given to Moses, that was given to the Joshua, the 70 elders, the great Sanhedrin. And if you didn't come through that level of teaching, they didn't consider you to be a teacher with authority. Another place they said, who is this Yeshua? He doesn't teach. He doesn't have his letters. I mean, he didn't go to their school. Um, and then when he says he gave all authority and then he told them whatever they bind and loose will be on earth, will be allowed in heaven, that was a legal ruling that, that he was giving his disciples because that terminology is what the rabbis used. So whenever the rabbis made a decision about something, if they forbid it, then they bound it. If they allowed it, then they loosed it. So um, I believe that it was twofold that what he was hinting at when he said, by all authority has been given to me and he gave it to the disciples, was that he gave them the power to make those decisions and those rulings and also in the spirit realm, which is why they had such power and were able to bind and loose things in a spirit realm as well. So it's, it's got two answers to it. Okay, so the final question of this question, the last segment of it, I think is probably the best one. So how do you use it in a practical way and i bet you billy you even want to get involved with this yeah well um i think the most practical application there is exactly what scott was talking about which is um to respond to our enemy the same way christ did um 
our Messiah had the power to simply um, snap his fingers and make Satan go away, period. And I'm not talking about go away from him. I'm talking about go away. (laughs) But that's not what he chose to do. What he chose to do was he chose to give us the example Mm -hmm. of um, going back to Scripture. And and I think that is probably um, the most important and most practical application of that. Now, this implies a, a couple of things. For starters, you've got to have enough scripture in you yep. that you know yep. how to respond right. to Satan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't exactly use the, the sword of the Lord against our enemy if you don't know how to wield the sword. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think the practical applications there, our time with God, our, our time reading, time meditating, um, so that when the enemy comes against you, you are properly armed. Yeah, And I'll go ahead and throw in there that uh, uh, as far as going back to the limit on, on things, Use the, use the scripture as your boundary. So if you saw Jesus using authority over sickness, if you saw him using right. authority over the devil, if you saw him using authority even over uh, the weather, if you saw him using authority over, uh, you know, whatever you saw him using the authority over, you can say, okay, that is going to be my boundary. Because the Lord said, the works I do, you're also going to do. So if you see Jesus using authority over certain situations, then you also have the authority over those same situations and, of course, the thing that really causes the authority to work in the spirit world is when you use the name of Jesus, mm-hmm. when you rebuke in the name of Jesus, when you command in the name of Jesus, because that is the thing that causes the spirit world to uh, to, to quake. Anything Amen. else, Steve? No, no, that's all. You got it A lot all. of good stuff here. All right. We have four minutes left here before the bottom of the hour. Question for you guys. Can you explain what this means? What is the ritual of purity? Uh, was it? Purify? How many days? What do the Jewish people do for purification? And so this was actually the question we talked about off air last uh, week. Which was, was, it, was uh, that was specific to uh, childbirth? Yes, it was. Oh, um, okay. and, and why there is a, a difference between um, the 33 days and the, and the 66 days or the 7 days and 14 days. Um, and um, we could certainly discuss it. There, There is a... This is all part of the ritual law, right? There, There is a time of purification that must happen. Um, and I think the rabbis explain that the reason it is doubled for women is that this is um, the one who, who gives life, a woman, um, also giving li- giving birth to someone who is capable of giving life, and therefore that time is doubled. As for the exact um, 7 and 14 and 33 and, and 66, I don't know that that's actually laid out in Scripture. Well, uh, the numbers are. The seven for and four. Why though? Oh no, no it doesn't say for why. It, it just, just says, says do this. Correct. So, yeah. And the, the the purification, the primary reason for those purification things had to do with tabernacle and temple worship, uh, because the presence of God was among them. Right. And and if they touched a body, if they had relations with their husband or their wife, whatever the occasion was, um, if there was something that caused them to be unclean, then they had to become ritually immersed uh, to become ritually clean, you know, or ceremonial <laughs> ceremonially clean. Um, there's a lot of that stuff that even the rabbis do today, um, but some of it is just not possible to apply because it had to do with, again, the temple and the tabernacle period of time. But it also laid the groundwork for why we see baptism being so important in the New Testament. Uh, When Paul says there are many baptisms, he's referring to those many ritual um, dunkings, is what he's really talking about. The purification. Right, Right. there was a purification for so many different things, but when he said there was only one baptism unto salvation— He's referring to that baptism or that immersion of being immersed in Messiah in Christ. So that's what he's talking about when he said there are many. But again, it just had to do with symbolic spiritual cleansing for temple and tabernacle worship. And if we understand these rules of purification, uh, it also helps us understand some other things like the woman with the issue of blood. 
because she never finished bleeding, mm-hmm. it was impossible for her to have the seven days or to to then go and be become ritually clean again. So she was um, cut off from um, the spiritual life and and uh, fellowship with her fellow Israelites because she was ritually unclean and could not become clean. Yeah. Think about that for a moment that she had enough faith yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that she reached out and touched the garment of Christ. Yep. That yep. was like, no, no. That was a yep. big deal. That yeah, was a big deal. That was a huge deal that she did. We got 15 seconds. All right. Just to throw out there that the whole idea of baptism that we have in the, in the church world today, it, it is a part of Jewish life. Uh, it's just one, another, another uh, emblem of uh, the Judaic nature of our Christian faith. All right. We're out of time. Uh, here's Rush. <laughs> wow. So they put the little ridges on the silver dollars so that if you tried to tear some of that silver off, you'd see it. And where did All they right. learn that lesson from? Yeah. They learned that lesson from the Romans who had that exact same problem. Yep. That was the the problem with the Roman currency is that they became so indebted that as uh, the way you paid your tax is that when you brought your coin in, they clipped the edge off of it and that became the tax. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, it is. Interesting the reason for history of things. money and yeah. stuff. Yeah, they really And is. good morning, Arkansas. That's <laughs> what we're talking. We talked during the break, too. That's, you know, doing. But we were talking about purification when we left. When we come back, uh, also, I got a question for you guys. Uh, is everything in the, is it the Nicene, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Creed correct? And he wrote out the Roman Catholic version. There are several versions basically the same. It may be we believe instead of I believe, and he wrote it all out here uh, for us. And he says, is that creed correct? You want me to read it all? Yeah, I, yeah. I don't remember Okay, I, don't remember I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. The only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from life, true God from true God, begotten, not made, uh, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made for us men and for our salvation. He came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolate church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. I was waiting for that last part because I, that was the only part that I thought was going to be of yep. concern. Because when I went through the history of the church course, I remember having to, to read that a couple times. and. The, that um, is a lowercase Catholic. Though. Correct. Yes, so it is a lowercase Catholic. And that would just mean universal, universal. in that correct. sense. Now, yeah, the holy universal and apostolic church. The, apostolic. The, apostolic. I agree with everything on that except for the intent of the last part, uh, which would be the they were trying to put that authority uh, in Rome under the Catholic church. Yeah. Because part of the reason they had to develop that is because there were so many groups um, and coming out of all of the Gnostics that were coming to faith that they had to try and nail down 
a central theme to say, hey, if you're going to be part of Christianity, these are the basic tenets. So for the, I, I didn't really, outside mean, of that, I didn't hear anything. You might want to explain what a Gnostic is. Uh, Gnostic are people who have um, believe they have special hidden knowledge. It's actually a group that developed around 400 B.C. Um, that uh, were part of the Greeks, and they believed in a, a deeper understanding of the spirit world. And all of these people started to um, get saved, uh, around the second and third centuries, well, they brought that Gnosticism into the church and say, well, hey, um, God gave me a revelation about when Jesus was walking on the water, or he showed me a hidden book. Right. And then they would start writing what we now call the Gnostic Gospels, things like the Gospel of Thomas and stuff like that. And so all of this stuff was popping up, and they say, hey, we got we got to put a stop to this. We need to have at least it. So their intent was good. But at the same time, um, it went too far as the Catholic Church really started to take too too much control. Right, yeah. and, and I will say that the, the that the creed you wrote, read there specifically comes from the uh, um, Catholic Church, and, and they've taken some liberties. That is not exactly how that read in its origin. I, I think in its origin, uh, its original form, uh, I probably agree with it a little more. It, it ha- doesn't have. There's some tones there, like um, Steve was just saying, and and that is lacking in the original. Um, so, uh, it, the original, I, I certainly don't have any problem with this one, uh, makes me a little off. Anytime people start taking something that was original and messing with it to fit their own agenda, makes me a little cautious. So yeah. Yeah. you feel that way with the Bible, with all the, the, uh, different translations and transliterations. I, I think you were to speak the original languages. Yeah. So okay. some, of them, some of them have, um, definite uh, agendas, agendas, especially absolutely. with, um, Especially with the uh, the translations that are trying to make the Bible uh, gender neutral, mm-hmm. they're trying mm-hmm. to remove uh, masculine pronouns, or trying to make it uh, more culturally um, acceptable. Acceptable, which is ridiculous. Um, but uh, yeah, so there is there are agenda driven uh, translations, unfortunately, out there. But the the idea with this Gnostics, um, the word Gnostic itself comes from the word gnosis, which has to do with with knowledge, and um, and they believe that they have this secret uh, hidden knowledge. And typically you can recognize that because they'll say things like, you know, you know, our group uh, knows this or we're the only ones who have this. And, right. and when you get to that, you need to just really uh, run away. So if you have a group saying, well, you have to belong to our church to be saved or our church to get to heaven or our church this, then you've really gotten off into a, um, into the weeds. And the yeah. idea with the whole Catholic thing, um, uh, yeah, originally it was just supposed to be a universal church, but it was very much laying the foundation for Okay, now we're the ones. We're the one, the Catholic Church, right. and, um, and so it, so is, it was because of that thought process that when Luther came and nailed the theses to the door, mm-hmm. and we began to understand the priesthood of the believer. Mm-hmm. I mean, that changed everything. It did. It did. You know, because he came up in he came up as a Augustinian monk within the Catholic uh, denomination. Of course, we're looking at between the writing of the of the Nicene Creed all the way up until Luther. We're looking at uh, we're looking at um, about twelve hundred years, so a lot of time Long passed. Time. And by the time he gets there, uh, the thing that really caused him to become outraged is the selling of indulgences, mm-hmm. where the Catholic Church was you know selling these ways that you could get out of punishment and so forth, and that really got him upset. Let, let's talk about that just for a second. Things like throwing, you know sharp rocks on steps and crawling over them and mm-hmm. bleeding and things of that nature using whips to whip your back and that was quote pain for your sins jesus Why did jesus, jesus, jesus never right. said you needed to do that he said i'm 
right. the, the payment for your sins. My yeah. death was. Mm-hmm. And the, the whole idea that you could pay. Yeah, uh, and you had to pay money for those. You had those. to pay money to get relatives out of purgatory, or you had to you could pay certain amounts of money to be uh, exempt, or not exempt, but uh, oh, yeah, exonerated have, from yeah, certain yeah, sins. And you could and, have those sins forgiven in advance. Hey, I'm planning on having a good weekend. <laughs> I'm going to need to give you some cash now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and part of the other thing that went to it is uh, people would, that pain went into um, positions. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think that one's called simony, where they were actually paying um, for places within the church to be in certain positions and leadership and stuff like that. So, yeah, there was a lot of corruption that Luther walked into at the time. Okay. Kind of like what Christ got after the money changers. Huh? It's exactly yeah. the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anytime that a man has a hold of anything and he is not connected to the Spirit of God, he will corrupt it. It's called yeah. greed. Yes. Well, you know, we we pick on the Catholic, or I, I'll, I'll make that an I. I pick on the Catholic Church from time to time. <laughs> but I'm also pretty apt to say, hey, look, they didn't invent that. Just go look at what Christ was dealing with. Yep. That, Catholic Church didn't invent that. That is the nature of man. Yep. And when we find ourselves in uh, positions of authority and power, unless you are connected to Christ, you can abuse that pretty quickly. And that has happened in, in all kinds of human organizations, right. not, not just the church. And, and all kinds of denominations have the same problem in different yeah, areas. Yeah. So. Today. Mm-hmm. Yes. Today. Yeah. Today. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of churches that stand up and say, we're the only way. Yeah, right. Well, Red know, flags. There's some yes, great. I got great jokes about those churches. <laughs> yeah. so, so everybody knows, uh, getting to heaven and walking, and Peter taking you for a walk through heaven and things going on. But uh, yeah. and I won't do that right now. Okay. So, <laughs> my goal. My goal. My in. goal is not to divide. Right. You know, it's, to, it's to draw people together. But the bottom. In fact, I heard a preacher. Use one of my jokes the other day. I no. couldn't believe it. Did it give you credit for it? No, of okay. course not. Of course not. As I always, it was being Southern Baptist, that's where my starting my belief system came from because my grandfather was a Southern Baptist. And, uh, you know, one of my all-time favorite jokes is, you know, you know, why do Southern Baptists not make love standing up? Because people think they're dancing. <laughs> So, you know, that's... <laughs> we'll now take a break. And that's we'll a pray. pretty good joke, man. We'll pray it's, it's for a pretty, while we're all fair. There you go. That's a pretty good joke. I, I can say it because I'm steeped in Southern Baptism. Right. All right, I can tell you. <laughs> but the, you know, it's just really interesting uh, that there are so many things that divide the church yeah. from each denomination, and it shouldn't. Right. We have the one important thing that brings us all together in Christ. One of my right. favorite stories is Paul used the division of theology to escape his trial. And what he did is he declared himself, declared his hope in the resurrection. Right. And when he did that, then the Pharisees and the Sadducees started right. fighting right. amongst themselves. Himself, yeah. And he slipped out the back door. <laughs> yeah. So but now the devil say, does the same thing. Mm-hmm. I will say that uh, part of the reason we have such division in the modern Western church is because of something we talk a lot about here, which is the difference between the Greek mindset and the Hebrew mindset. Um, the Greek mindset is always looking for one correct answer. And if you are, if you strongly and vehemently believe that you have one correct answer and I have a different one correct answer, um, then we break fellowship over that in the West. And we just go, well, obviously you're not saved and I am, um, so I'm going to go over here and start my own church. And, and that leads to that exact same, that, that exact thing. We we see churches split and they go one block down the road and they start a new church over and over. Instead of being willing to say, hey, look, uh, I acknowledge 
that there's a whole bunch about this book that I don't understand yet, and we can come together and hammer that out as brothers and may still walk away at the end of the day uh, not agreeing, but we're going to continue to walk together so that we can come back and do that again next week. Um, Under Christ, in we're going to walk right. together. Because yeah. there are, there's very little we actually have to agree on. We have to agree that Christ is God in the flesh. We have to agree that he died for my sins. We have to agree on a very small base and everything else we can sit around and argue about. Steve and I sit around and argue a lot about those sorts of things. So he's, he's still, wrong. He's he still ain't learned nothing days, yet. So. And that's why I've got Scott <laughs> between them if you're watching on uh, Facebook. I'm a rose between two thorns. <laughs> All right. Wow. It's a quarter until wow. 8, 39 degrees. Bible guys are here until 8 o'clock. Got another question for him when we come back. But right now, what's the traffic look, look like? Well, let's find out. All right, I want to let everybody know we're going to get in the weeds a little bit. Okay. All right, There's nothing wrong with that. We're going to get in the weeds. If you have a question, you send it to BibleGuys at Salem, S-A-L-E-M-L-R.com, or you can call 823-0965 when the Bible Guys are on the air. I heard you guys talking about the new year a few weeks ago and how the January 1st isn't really the real deal. I felt like there was some sort of disagreement between Dr. Stewart and Pastor Steve, and I was hoping they could comment on that again. I was also wondering if the Bible guys have any prophetic feelings about 2020. Do they have any idea about what we might be seeing come to pass this year? That goes along with the prophetic question that we had last week. So... Dr. Stewart and Pastor Steve, what were you arguing over about the the, the new year? That was a very good um, um, Jewish analogy that Billy gave is is he's right and he's right also. I'll let Pastor Scott explain the the Roman year. He's got that down much better. I mean, a little bit more of the history about why we have January as the new year. And then I'll let him tell you why also the... The, the Julius Caesar calendar, and why the, and then I'll give you my my take on it first. Okay, he's yeah. all, he's better at that. Oh, they're, they're they're all to this at this day at this moment. I forget exactly, but there are we have several dozen calendars in the world. I think in Japan it's the year twenty five. Yeah, right. Chinese now. Chinese calendar. calendar. Uh, there are different New Years and things like that. Uh, and in the fifteen fifteen eighties, uh, Pope Gregory um, decided he wanted to have one unifying calendar for all the people that were under the papacy uh, at that back in those days, uh, England, the new year in England, uh, there was no America. Uh, the new year was in March. Uh, and so it was, there was, it was all over the place. And so uh, he decided to, instead of putting the biblical calendar in place, he decided to create one of his own. That's what we go by today. It's called the Gregorian calendar. And that's why it was named after named after him. And he changed it all, uh, changed it all around. And he decided to make the new year, in January, as opposed to the biblical time period, which was more in line with what the uh, Anglicans were doing, or, or Anglicans, the Anglo Saxons were doing, which was in um, in January. I'm sorry, which was in March, uh, and uh, and so uh, and it was more in line with what the Scripture says. So this is this is the way I take it from it. From Exodus chapter 12, um, God tells the children of Israel. He says, "Now the Lord uh, spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month." shall be the beginning of months to you. And if we keep reading here, this is when Passover is instituted. So it's actually uh, the first day of the month of Nisan. Passover comes along on the 14th day. And, of course, that shifts between March and April in our calendar. 
Uh, it says, uh, now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, this month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Okay. So from, from, from me and the way it was uh, in antiquity, um, this was the first month of the year. It was the first month, the beginning of the months of the year. Now, rabbis have come along and have uh, seen other verses of Scripture that are more obscure, and they've created another new year, which is going to be at Rosh Hashanah, which is the head of the year. Uh, and so they, they'll say, now we have a spiritual, which they say that's the, the, the one in March, and then we have a physical or civil new year, which is the one in, um, in the fall, which is around uh, Tabernacles time. Uh, and, um, and so they put two new years. And, um, and I think for me, I think Rosh Hashanah is a replacement theology of Yom Teruah. I don't, I don't see it as having as right. much merit as, as this. And Pastor Stephen, I have a, maybe a little bit different perspective on that. But I don't think we argued about it, per se. No, no, no. Um, So Pastor Scott is absolutely correct where it says in Exodus 12 that it shall be the beginning of the months. But then we have this other thing that that where we would have a, uh, I don't know if it's a slight disagreement or not, but um, according to rabbinic tradition, the beginning of the world happened on Rosh Hashanah. So again, it's rabbinic tradition. But we, we also have these other things that talk about counting of years that is different than the beginning of the month. So as he said, the beginning of months is in March and April, and it says that very clearly it's going to be the beginning of the months. But in Exodus thirty four twenty two, it says, you shall observe the feast of weeks of first fruits of the wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering, which is tabernacles. And it says, though, the feast of ingathering at the end of the year. Whoa, women. How does that work with the beginning of the months, but then the Feast of Ingathering is in the seventh month of counting the months? Then we go over to Leviticus 25 when it tells us how to count the Jubilees, which are 50th years. And it says, you shall count um, seven Sabbaths of years, and on the Day of Atonement you shall make a trumpet sound throughout all the land declaring the Jubilee year. Well, the Day of Atonement is um, about five days, if I remember right, or seven days prior to um Tabernacles, which again is in the seventh month. So to me, it makes sense that they started counting the months in the beginning of the year in March, April, or Nisan, but then they counted the um, jubilees in the fall. And so I, I see that being for the counting of years in the fall, but then the, the beginning of that religious calendar be, began, begins in March, April. So I often try to explain it this way where it may seem confusing why would God have two different ways of counting um, and, and that just like we have a fiscal year and we have a, uh, regular year. year, regular year. Um, and I had one guy who, who was very adamant. He was one of these hyper calendar guys from the messianic community. And, and when I showed him this, he goes, well, he goes, that was just God giving them a warning that in six months, the year was going to start. I said, really, we can't have an honest conversation here. Yeah. If you're going to say that God says to blow the <laughs> trumpet, but he's just warning you for six months that the year's changing, we can't even have a conversation here. So it's it's not that it's um, a disagreement. There's just two. I think we're saying the same things, but there's two different ways to number. One begins the religious year, and the other one counts the jubilee years. See, I warned everybody we're getting into weeds. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, and here, here's the thing that will, and people go, why should we care about that? Christ did away all this stuff. I will tell mm-hmm. you right now, and one, of the, and maybe within about a year, um, when I get to recording this prophetic stuff, I'm getting ready to work on for the institute. <clears throat> the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of what you hear on the prophetic news networks is so wrong. <laughs> and they don't take into account these feasts. 
And if they ever get into studying the feast and the marriage uh, ceremony of the Jewish people, the story of Joseph, you will find out why it's important to know this stuff. Because it will blow up a million books on prophecy. Everything... Do you hear that, Tim LaHaye? <laughs> <laughs> Everything that is of any significance in our Bibles happened on a Jewish feast day. That's right. And nothing, so, nothing, by the way, nothing against Tim. No, of course he's, not. He's wrong. All right, just so you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so everything happened on a, on, a, on a feast day, a feast of the Lord. And so if you're going to understand the Bible in the way it was written, you have to see it that These way. These calendars are important yeah. for understanding those things. It, so the, the Bible, the New Testament, only gives us 18 days of the life of Jesus. And of that, of the, I have the statistics on this. I'm trying to draw them up from my mind right now, but it's early. Uh, I think you said it was like 76%. Yeah. Like, so we have 18 days of his life in the New Testament and 75 plus percent of those 18 days is on a feast day. Right. You don't, you don't see it when you read just a paragraph here or a verse here. If you read it through, you'll find out the vast majority of the New Testament was written about him going to a feast, being at a feast. Or leaving a feast. If you have a timeline, yeah, you yeah. see all you, of you that. see all that. So if it, so you know, the Bible, John, the Gospel of John even says, if everything Jesus did was written down, there would be not room enough for all the books well, to work. Think about what it would be. So the, the Holy, so the Holy Spirit then pulls out only eighteen days of Jesus' life and says, "This is enough food to feed the body of Messiah for three thousand years," and the dates he pulls out all have to do with the feast. And the church flies past it and doesn't even realize it. So much food and information we are denying ourselves because we don't take the Bible in context. And we're too afraid to let the, the feast of the Lord be a part of our life. Cycle. Yeah, if you're a pastor, I suggest that you take a look at a timeline mm. yep. and then say to yourself, why haven't I been teaching about the feast? Yep. Right. Right. I mean, seriously. How is it? How could, they be, how could they be irrelevant when the Holy Spirit chose to make sure the whole New Testament was centered around them? It makes absolutely no sense. To All me. right. Do you, any of you have any prophetic feelings about 2020? Steve? That music? That's music. Yeah, we got time. Yeah, there's you a lot got, of people you got prophesying. 60 seconds. There's a lot of people prophesying a lot of, about a different things. And I, just like I tell people with prophetic things, you need to wait. Yeah. Um, I think maybe they're drawing from the whole 2020 thing or, or whatever the case is. The Kansas City Chiefs winning the Super Bowl. There may be some truth to some of that kind of stuff. But um, I, I always come back, and we say this a lot here, I think a shaking's got to come before the waking comes. Yeah, that's why I'm a pan-millennialist. So you're the spirit. God's spirit's going to do some incredible things this year. I believe that. God yeah. always does incredible Amen. things. Billy? Uh, that's not a limb I'm crawling out on and then sawing behind all myself. Right. So, all right. I love you all, but no. Bible, the Bible guys are back next Tuesday. Remember, you got a question, bibleguys at salemlr.com, or when they're on, give them a call, 823-0965. Let's take a break. When we come back, Judge Chris Carnahan will be with us here in the studio on the Dave Ellswick Show.